This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. We're not strictly intellectual beings. And if you think about the way you made most of the most important decisions in your life, those were made intuitively. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today, we're talking again with Gavin DeBecker, author of The Gift of Fear. The last episode was so chock full of goodness that we ended up breaking it into two parts. Last time and this time, we'll be discussing intuition and fear and how it keeps us alive if we actually listen to it, honing our sixth sense for danger, and spotting abusers, conmen, and other predators, and more. This is part two on this accidental AOC toolbox-style episode from Gavin DeBecker. And by the way, if you're new to the show, We'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC Toolbox, where we discuss things like reading body language and having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, mentorship, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're in the USA, you can text the word CHARMED, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. Everywhere else, just go to theartofcharm.com, and also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's part two with Gavin DeBecker. In the book, you use a classic example, the main story of this woman, Kelly. Can you tell us a little bit about that and highlight some of the pre-incident indicators as well that show up in the story? Sure. Uh, Kelly was a young woman who was walking home to her building and she had a bunch of grocery bags, more than she could easily carry. And when she got to the building, she took a key out to unlock the door and she found, as she often did, that her neighbors had not secured the door and latched it. So she was pissed about that, but also happy that she didn't have to go through the process of using the key and she just used her hip to push the door open. And then she was walking up the four flights of stairs and one of the bags tore and it let out a lot of uh, cans of cat food that rolled down and turned the quarter and went down to the next level. And she suddenly heard a voice friendly voice called out, got it. And then this friendly looking guy came around the corner and uh, said, let me give you a hand. But right from the moment she heard the voice, she didn't like it. And she had no real good reason. And this guy said, let me give you a hand. She said, no, thanks. I've got it. And he said, you don't look like you've got it. And uh, what floor are you going to? And she paused a moment and then she said the fourth, but I'm okay. Really, I don't want any help. But the guy wouldn't hear a word of it. And he said, I'm going to the fourth floor too. That's force teaming right? We're both going to the fourth floor to make you feel more comfortable. And he eventually reached up and took one of the bags from her, but she didn't let go of it. And still holding on to that bag, she said, I don't need any help. And he said, there's such thing as being too proud, you know. And for a moment, she didn't let go of the bag and then she did. And that, you know, seemingly insignificant exchange between the stranger and the, and the woman getting his courtesy was the signal to him and to her, that she was willing to trust him. And really, as the bag passed from her control to his, so did she pass from her control to his. And he then said, we better hurry. We've got a hungry cat up there because he'd seen cans of cat food that he had picked up. Again, they don't have a cat. That's forced teaming. It's trying to make you feel, you know, you know, we can be comfortable together. And when she got to the door to her apartment, she said, I'll take it from here. And he said, no, no, I didn't come this far to let you have another cat food spill. 
you know, he saw her hesitation and he said, Hey, we can just leave the door open. Like ladies do in old movies. I'll put the stuff down and go. I promise. And the unsolicited promise is another one of these pre-incident indicators, another one of these features of behavior that is very powerful because she didn't ask him for a promise. And you don't ask somebody for a promise when you trust them. You know, somebody promises you something when they can tell you don't trust them. For example, you know, my 16-year-old son says, uh, hey, dad, can I borrow the car tonight? And I hesitate a moment. And he says, I'll be back by 11, I promise. The promise isn't particularly interesting to me at that time. He's promising that because he can see that I doubt him. And that was happening with Kelly and the Predator as well, that he only answered by saying, I promise I'll put the stuff down and go, I promise, because he could see that she wasn't persuaded. Ultimately, she did let him into the apartment, and that led to a three-hour rape ordeal. And uh, most rapes, by the way, the average is two hours. It's not a, a brief victimization. And and she later came to me and she said, you know, what in the world made me feel uncomfortable about him when I, all I had heard was his voice? And, and, you know, she was lamenting that she didn't listen to that signal where she was immediately uncomfortable with the voice. And we went back over all of the experiences that she related to me. And it turns out that when she pushed the door open, she latched it behind her. And she's sure she latched it behind her because she tested it. She pulled on the door handle as she always did. And that meant that by the time she got a couple of stories up, a couple of floors up on the staircase, that the only place that person could have been would be hiding somewhere because she didn't hear the door open again. So when somebody said, got it, catching the cans of cat food, she knew intuitively that person must have been hiding out of view in the main lobby corridor downstairs when she locked the door behind her. There was no other way into the building. And that's the signal that she got that she chose to ignore and to be talked out of in all the ways that she was. Wow. The problem with that is, right, you realize only in hindsight, just like I did in the Mexican fake taxi cab, that you're just a few minutes behind it. You're too late. It's 2020 hindsight. But at the time, you do have that intuition and it seems like our intuition is correct. It's just our interpretation of that intuition or the fact that we're smothering it or drowning it out with something else is not always correct. That's exactly right. And, you know, she had the internal dialogue, which is she was uncomfortable about the person. And then she said to herself, gee, I've got no reason to be uncomfortable. This guy is not doing anything except wanting to help me, which was true, by the way. That's all he was doing in that moment was wanting to get her to accept his help. Now, favorably in the Kelly story, she made a decision later on, which saved her life and made an enormous difference to, to her. And that really made this a, an experience of prevailing. She did experience a rape ordeal, but at the end of it, he said, I've got to go. I'm in a hurry. And he got up from the bed and he closed the window and he got dressed and he said to her, I'm going to go to the kitchen to get something to drink. Don't you move. And she was immediately afraid that she would be killed. And in fact, we now know that he did kill two of his other victims. And so when he walked down the hall, she said to him, don't worry, I won't move. You know that. And when he turned and walked down the hall, she took the sheet off the bed and silently moved right behind him down the entire hall in her own apartment toward the kitchen like a ghost, she said to me later on, where if he'd stopped or turned around, he'd have obviously recognized her. But she knew if she'd stayed in the room that she was going to be killed. 
And she said to me, I don't know how I knew that. And I said, well, go back over it. You do know. And what it turns out is that when he got up and closed the window, he had no reason to do that. He was leaving. Why would he care if the window, if there's warm air or cold air coming in? He closed the window because he did not want to have any sounds or noises leave the apartment. Noise was the reason. She said because of that, she had this tremendously courageous signal that filled her that said, follow him right now down the hallway. And she followed him down the hallway toward the kitchen. And as he walked into the kitchen, she turned left and went out her apartment door and walked immediately to the apartment across the hall, which she knew intuitively would be unlocked. And it was. And she entered the apartment and her two neighbors were in there and she locked the door behind herself and she put her finger up and said, quiet. And because of that act, that enormously courageous act, she survived. And he was indeed in the kitchen looking through a drawer for knives. And she said to me later that fear had replaced every feeling in her body. I'm quoting her. She said, like an animal opening up inside me, it used its muscles to move me down the hall. And I had nothing to do with it. I was a passenger moving down that hallway. So that's what can happen when you listen to fear without question. When fear says, shut up and do what I say and I'll get you out of here. And so, you know, she prevailed tremendously well through that and was not killed, obviously. It seems like the difference between worrying and intuition is that one is maybe based on a little bit more rational concerns or is more subconscious and and one's a waste of time. Yes, worry is, is a waste of time. And in fact, the, the root of that word, it means to chew on. And its original usage was that people would talk about a dog worrying a shoe worrying a leather shoe. It meant chewing on the shoe. It doesn't get you anything and uh, nobody will ever thank you for doing it. No kid who's gone off to college will ever say, gee, mom, that all that worrying you did really helped me. It makes everyone uncomfortable and it's a waste of time. There's an antidote to worry that's very effective and that is action. If there's an action to take, because you're worried your kid has gone off to university, if there's an action to take, giving your daughter a book or talking to the local police department or giving her resources or better training, those are actions. And if there's no action to take, then the worry is totally counterproductive. And I just want to quickly say worry is not an intuitive signal. Fear is an intuitive signal. Fear is a signal in the presence of danger, meaning you perceive it right now. You see it, you sense it, you smell it, you feel it, you're aware of it. But worry is always based on something in your imagination or your memory. It's never about the present moment. Worry and anxiety both are not uh, intuitive signals. Right, so this is, worry is definitely distinct, and I wanted to highlight that, distinct from intuition, in where we're seeking to hone our intuition or uncover it is recapturing our inherent predictive skills, not coming up with a way to worry about more stuff that's not relevant. Very true. And so if you work on the ways in which your intuition genuinely communicates with you, which can be dark humor, curiosity, gut feelings, hesitation, and fear, and you think less about the things that have no substance, they literally have no matter. You know, the expression, something doesn't matter, you could call that does not have matter. Thought is typically the vast majority of thought, 90% or greater, is an absolute waste of time. One piece of that story with Kelly was the passive control. You mentioned that, and I'm a little bit hung up on that. You mentioned, well, that's when she handed over her control to him, when she gave him the bag with the cat food. Is that because 
that showed that she was willing to accept someone invading kind of her psychological boundaries. That's right. That gesture told both of them that she was willing to participate when, you know, I would teach someone if you're not comfortable about someone in your environment and they don't listen to the word no. Remember, she said two or three times to him, no, I'm fine. Really, I don't want any help. No, I'm okay. That is also another predatory strategy, which is refusing to hear the word no or ignoring the word no. The strategy that's best for a target in that situation is to ramp up the intensity of the no. I said no. The vast majority of people, even predators, will recognize this is not my victim because this person is not accepting the negotiation. There's a, an observation that I've made often that when a man says no, it's the end of a discussion. And when a woman in our culture says no, it's the beginning of a negotiation. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. 
Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. Yeah, that which is unfortunate, actually, and dangerous, as we see from the story as well. Yes, and dangerous to so many people, but also just removes the sovereignty of women so often. Because if I say no to somebody out in town today, I say, no, I don't want any help from somebody in the store, they tend to hear it. If a woman says, no, no, I don't want a drink. I don't want you to buy me a drink. Oh, come on, just one drink. Negotiation. Oh, come on, loosen up, have a drink. Negotiation. How do we improve our ability to make conscious predictions of intent or behavior? In other words, how can we kind of marry our intellect with our intuition? Is that even desirable? I think it isn't necessary because if you listen, there is an intellectual process at work here. For example, I meet somebody, I feel immediately uncomfortable about this person. I don't want this person to be in the environment of my kids ever alone, for example. So now there's an intellectual process, which is I can ask myself why. I can ask myself what I registered there. I can discuss with myself whether or not I'm willing to listen. And if I'm not willing to listen, why not? And I can see what it is that I'm responding to. So there's an inquiry to be made there, but there's no role for intellect first. We're not strictly intellectual beings. And if you think about the way you made most of the most important decisions in your life, those were made intuitively. They were first an intuitive idea. Something told you you wanted to pursue seeing this person. You didn't want this person in your life. You did want this person in your life. And this decision, who you include in your life, and who you don't include in your life. These are literally, this is the foundation of the quality of life, is who shall we have relationships with and who shall we not have relationships with. You have a technique that involves creating lists of opposites in your head. I think there was a grocery store helper, which is what jogged my memory on this. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where it's, you ask yourself, is he a manager looking for a TV star or is he a creep? It helps kind of calibrate your intuition in the moment. Sure. If you can imagine a woman's uncomfortable with a stranger in your home, let's say somebody's delivering furniture, for example, her comfort communicates that she's already predicted he's not dangerous to her or her discomfort communicates that she feels there is a problem. So her intuition has asked and answered several questions in order to complete that prediction. A strategy I found very valuable that recognizes that we are more familiar with favorable behaviors than unfavorable behaviors because we tend to experience more favorable behaviors than the opposite. What you can do is develop in your head a list of the opposites. I call it the rule of opposites. And here's an example. A man's in your home uh, delivering something. Favorable would be he does his job and no more. The opposite would be he offers to help on unrelated tasks. That's unfavorable. Favorable would be he's respectful of privacy. The opposite would be he's curious and he's asking lots of questions. Favorable would be he stands an appropriate distance from you. The obvious opposite is he stands too close. Favorable would be he waits to be escorted in your house. The obvious opposite would be he just walks around the house freely. Favorable, he keeps his comments to the job at hand. 
right? He's talking about delivering this couch. Unfavorable would be that he gets into discussions on other topics and he tries to make personal conversation. Favorable would be that he's mindful of the time and he works quickly. The opposite would be he's got no concern about time. He seems in no hurry to leave. Favorable would be doesn't care if others are home. The opposite would be wants to know if others are home. Favorable would be doesn't care if others are expected. The opposite would be wants to know if others are expected. Favorable might be doesn't pay undue attention to you. And the opposite might be stares at you. Now, the reason that's so powerful is all of us know the favorable list perfectly. And we've all experienced the favorable list. A workman who comes, wants to get the job done, stays focused on what he's doing, goes about his business and leaves. We all know that. So we don't know the opposite as well, but you can use this rule of opposites to identify what it would look like. Perfect. Yeah, it helps calibrate us a little bit when we start talking ourselves out of something. We can go, wait a minute, there's a lot wrong here. And once you start to articulate it and put a finger on it, it starts to highlight just how inappropriate some of the behavior actually is. Yes, inappropriate and unwanted. And because a woman has the right to decide who's in her environment, and she also has a right to decide how they behave in her environment. And if not that, she has the right to leave. When you talked about Kelly earlier, you mentioned the refusal to hear no is just trouble in any context. Also, I assume people in the predator position make small requests and often use that as an excuse for contact to keep control of the situation, like the cat food or, oh, I'm just going to carry up the bags and help you. And so you mentioned in the book that when we have somebody in our life that is like that, even if they haven't victimized us yet, it could be somebody that we know that no contact is really the only answer, especially if, if this is someone that's threatened us or that's been a problem in the past. You say engage and enrage. The only answer, the only way to deal with these people is to cut off all the contact. I'd love to hear the rationale behind that because I think a lot of people, they don't do that. They keep stalkers and weirdos at arm's length, but they dangle just enough of a carrot, intentionally or unintentionally, of course, to keep them around. It's very true. And absolutely the most important thing to do when you don't want somebody in your life and they give you the creeps or make you uncomfortable is to return that person to the stranger pool, to return that person to the population of 320 million other Americans who you don't have relationships with. And the only way to do that is to stop engaging. And indeed, I have that expression, engage and enrage, because what happens when you engage someone, but you're not giving what they want, for example, a guy who wants to date you if you're a woman and you're not going to date him, but you're going to continue to keep him engaged in some way, is it tends to lead to hostility because he's not getting what he wants. The better choice is to say the words that few men have ever heard a woman say, but it would sound like this. I am absolutely certain that I don't want to have a romantic relationship with you. And I'm telling you that and you're hearing it. You are likely to put your attention elsewhere. And I certainly understand if that's what you do, because that's what I'm going to do. Done. Never another word, because any other words after that imply that there's a negotiation here, implies that there's opening. Typical ways that women say no to men. You'll understand when I share one with you what an invitation it is. If someone says I don't really want to date you because my head's not in the right place yet. I'm still not over my ex-boyfriend. What the man hears is the word yet. You'll be better soon. You just need more time. Or somebody who says you're really cute, but what the man hears is you're really cute. He doesn't hear you're really cute, but I don't want to date you. So with no reason, why would you give a reason to somebody you don't want a relationship with? Why would you talk about your intimate internal feelings? You just say, I don't want a relationship with you. I've thought about it. 
I decided I don't want a relationship with you. I expect you're going to put your attention elsewhere, and that's what I'm going to do. Right, so we mute them. My question following up from that then would be, how do we know we're not ignoring something maybe we should be paying attention to or suffer the consequences? Like, okay, we're ignoring this guy now, but, huh, that's weird. I keep seeing him everywhere. Is it just because I've met him and he lives in my neighborhood, or is this guy actually trying to be around me? At what level do we mute this person? What are we ignoring and what are we not ignoring? Well, I don't think you ignore anything. Your perception system doesn't even have the capacity to ignore, right? What you see is recorded. What you hear is recorded. What you feel is recorded. Now, what you do with it, that's up to us. So I don't think you ignore anything, but you make a decision about who you want in your life and who you don't want in your life. I suggest to people that they make very fast decisions about who you exclude from your life and very careful and slow decisions about whom you include in your life. And that very simple sentence will lead to a far happier life because your sovereignty, and I address this particularly to women, your sovereignty depends on you deciding rather than on other people deciding. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Right, and if you're slow to accept and quick to reject, it sets the filter up such that it's very difficult to get close to you. Safety-wise, that's definitely a good thing. Of course, you could probably tune it up too high and, and be lonely forever, but that's another show. I'd love to discuss the intimidation versus threats distinction. That is very clear in the book that one is an outcome and the other is an end game move. I think that's very useful today because of course people are intimidating others and threatening others all the time, but I think we tend to ignore a lot of threats that end up being things that we should not have ignored, thinking mistakenly that they're simple intimidations. It's true. I mean, these words are so misused now, and even more so in the age of terrorism, where threat is confused with risk. They're two different things. Put very simply, a threat is a statement of an intention to do harm. I will kill you. That's a threat. The far more common communication is actually called 
and intimidation. And an intimidation always includes the words if or else, until, unless. For example, I will burn down the building if I don't get the promotion. You know, an employee says that to his boss. Unless you apologize, I'll harm you in this way. If you fire me, you'll be sorry. Those are all intimidations. And they're different from threats in that they always tell you the outcome they want. Right in the statement, there it is. If you ever put out another music video, I'll kill you. I don't want you to put out another music video written to some public figure. If you fire me, you'll be sorry. I don't want to be fired. Whereas a threat, which is a statement of an intention to do harm, doesn't have any conditions and it doesn't have any alternatives and it doesn't offer ways out. Now, having said all that, I need to say the most important part. The overwhelming majority of threats go nowhere. Threats are very similar to promises. As an instrument of communication, the promise says, I'm trying to show you how seriously I feel in this matter. And the threat also says, I'm trying to show you how seriously I feel in this matter. And the overwhelming majority of threats go nowhere. You could think of a threat as a promise to kill. But if you think about it that way, you realize that promises, you have a way of evaluating whether somebody will keep a promise. And it's the same for evaluating whether somebody will keep a promise to kill, which is a threat. And the overwhelming majority of people won't keep that promise. So threats are not particularly powerful in most contexts. They are slightly more powerful in interpersonal relationships, husband-wife, for example, because they so destroy the quality of communication between the two people and they show so little regard between the two people that in a husband-wife situation, a threat has a lot more meaning than it does, for example, written to a public figure in a letter or posted on a blog somewhere. Their threats are not particularly important indicators of actual intention. Right. We have to look at their past performance as well. It's, I can see it now, right? It's someone threatens to kill you and it's like, well, you also said you were going to wash my car and that didn't happen. So your word isn't worth much good here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And also, even when you look at threats themselves, Jordan, they often get ramped up, ramped down. And so, for example, somebody says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to shoot that political public figure. And then three days later, they say, He's dead Thursday. That's his last day. Then on Saturday after Thursday, they say, I'm telling you, if I ever see him in my town, I'm going to shoot him. So they are really reducing the value of their statement because they didn't do it when they said they would do it. Why would we believe they would do it at all? In most cases, threats are not particularly valuable as a pre-incident indicator. So how do we respond to threats then or don't we? Well, I mean, it depends if you want to engage in relationship with somebody who makes threats, then you can respond. I wouldn't recommend that somebody who makes threats to you is ever appropriate to have a relationship with. And so, you know, there are threats in our daily lives that are culturally acceptable. A husband says to his wife, if dinner's not ready on time, you know, I'll kill you if you don't pick up the kids on time. But it's not meant in the context of I'll actually kill you. There are lighthearted threats. You know, a kid who says, I'm going to make a big scene in the supermarket, mom, unless you give me the chocolate, that's a threat too. And so how do you respond to that? Typically, if you give in, what happens is you'll get more threats. So in the case of the child in the supermarket, you hope to teach the kid that threatening behavior is offensive, disruptive, that nobody likes it, that it won't be well regarded, that it won't get him what he wants. And we hope to teach the adults in our life the same thing. But typically in our lives, if somebody made a threat to harm you, your relationship really ought to be over. Of course. Yeah. And we don't counter threaten. You mentioned that in the book as well. Why? Our counter threat is no more valid or credible than the original threat. That's why it doesn't work. 
Right. So it's ineffective, basically just puts us in the exact same category as that person. And now we're playing a drama, a game with this person. And that contradicts your earlier advice, which is you need to just cut off contact. So by counter threatening, you're just doing the dance willingly with this knucklehead who you shouldn't be in touch with at all. That's exactly right. And in fact, we're not doing the same thing he's doing because a counter threat is not an original idea. We're doing something far weaker than what he's doing because his threat, he knows whether he intends to carry it out or not. Um, our threat is clearly responsive. It's not something we had decided to express absent a threat. So a counter threat in general is, is not a workable strategy. I'd love to wrap this show with how to tell if you're in a potentially violent relationship. These, you mentioned, are America's most predictable murders, and I would love, and I know this kind of turned into a safety toolbox for AOC sisters here, and I'm okay with that. In fact, guys, apply this, but also send this to every female in your life, especially because of this next section here. How do we tell if we're in a potentially violent relationship? And if we need to make it gender specific, let's work on this for the ladies, even though I would imagine that most of this is overlapping between genders as well. So that is a great question that can be enormously helpful to people because indeed spousal homicide or homicide that happens in intimate relationships is the single most predictable and preventable homicide in America and very common today there'll be another three or four women killed by husbands or boyfriends in America. And so the warning signs that I encourage people to think of, and there's a whole list of them in the book. I won't go through the whole list, but I'll share with you some that come to mind now. Number one and most important is the woman has intuitive feelings that she is at risk. Number two is that at the inception of the relationship, it was accelerated, typically by the man, accelerated the pace and prematurely put on the agenda things like uh, marriage and living together and commitment. So if you think back to the beginning of the relationship, did it have an unnaturally accelerated pace? The next warning sign that comes to mind is that this person resolves conflict with intimidation, bullying, and violence. The next one is that he's verbally abusive or uses threats and intimidations as an instrument of communication. And that can be threats to harm, but it can also be threats to defame or to embarrass or to restrict freedom or to disclose secrets or to cut off support or to abandon or to commit suicide. All of those are threats designed to control someone else. Somebody who breaks things or strikes things in anger, that's called symbolic violence. It basically means if I tear up our wedding photo, I could do the same thing to you. An obvious warning sign would be that he has battered in prior relationships. And very often women in new relationships have learned that. And when I'm talking here about men and women, you can make this gender neutral as well. The same features apply. Another one is using alcohol or drugs with adverse effects, particularly alcohol. Alcohol is present in an overwhelmingly significant number of spousal homicides, drunkenness. And related to that is that the abusive partner cites alcohol as an excuse or explanation for hostile or violent behavior. You know, that was the booze talking, not me, or I got so drunk I was just crazy. If you have somebody who has a history of police encounters for behavioral offenses, threats, stalking, assault, battery, et cetera, those are all meaningful. Now, as I think of these, I realize that they can sound enormously obvious, and yet I've listed about 10 of them now, and millions of People have gotten into relationship with millions of people who have a lot of those 10 that I just listed. In the book, there's probably 30 of them that are super important. You mentioned in the book as well, men who cannot let go choose women who cannot say no. And I wanted to highlight that as a corollary to the above where 
these predators are consciously or subconsciously testing for your ability to say no. So if we find any of these signals in significant number, I assume we look for these in groups, maybe not just one, depending on the severity. We look for these probably in groups, just like we look to body language in groups to decide intent and things like that. So how do we stop that contact? How do we get out of there? I know you say the best way to stop contact is simply to stop contact. Is that the best way to get out of these types of relationships? It is. And of course, it becomes more complicated if one is married and far more complicated if you have kids with an abusive partner. And that's why, thankfully, battered women's shelters exist, because battered women's shelters are well prepared for dealing with people who have a complicated challenge ahead of them to extricate themselves from a relationship. The kids are in school, there are pets, there are jobs, etc. Sadly, about 75% of the people in battered women's shelters right now are children. And that's because a woman who doesn't have children doesn't have to go to a shelter usually. She can go sleep on a friend's couch. But a woman who has children has no place else to go very often. And so, you know, getting out of the relationship is not something that has to be done alone. There are resources. My books are certainly examples. And then there are more active resources in the community like battered women's shelters that are very valuable, even if only for advice, not just for staying in them. But if you're in a relationship that has you being abused or intimidated or afraid to leave, um, those are all good indicators that it will be better if you leave. Right, especially with the rationalization involved, like you mentioned, and the complexity of abusive relationships. A lot of people are addicted to the feeling of relief when an incident ends, and the worse the bad times are, the better the good times are in contrast. So it can be really easy to self-deceive. Very true. Every one of those things you just said is a key part of why it is so hard to get out of an abusive relationship. And, and let's just talk about the simplest one, just verbal abuse, a partner is verbally abusive, yells and says cruel and unkind things. Now, none of us would sign up for that going in, say, oh, that sounds good, I'll take that. But a lot of us accept it. And uh, self-love and sovereignty helps people to stop accepting it. So we're not only talking now about homicide as an outcome, because that's fairly rare relative to other forms of abuse. You know, some of those other warning signs is that the person minimizes incidents of abuse. You know, that itself is an abuse because it says, you know, I could say to you, Jordan, you're speaking to me in such an unkind way. It's bad for me. It's too much. I don't want it anymore. And you say, no, 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 that's not what's happening. So that itself is an abuse, which is not hearing someone and not honoring someone's sovereignty. And look, if we ever can help someone get out of a relationship that doesn't go anywhere good, uh, that's great. That's really something I'm, I'm happy to participate in because when I was younger, I used to think, ah, you know, Steve and Molly are getting divorced. How sad. I don't think how sad anymore. Good marriages don't end in divorce. Yes, absolutely. And I think that uh, people learn that the hard way all too many times. There's so much here in the book as well. A lot of practical exercises about asking yourself what your anxiety is hiding, using the gift of fear. Might have to have you come back at some point as well. But I want to be conscious of your time. And thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. Uh, thank you too, Jordan. And thanks for sharing your own story about the Mexico kidnapping. Very helpful for me to learn. Thanks. Be well.
Once again, a great big thank you to Gavin DeBecker, the book, The Gift of Fear. And of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to shout us out on Twitter. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. I can make sure some of your sentiments get back over to Gavin. By the way, our boot camp details, our boot camp live programs that we do in LA. This, by the way, is by far and away my favorite part of running AOC. So rewarding, really cool to see the transformation. That's at theartofcharm.com, or you can go to bootcamp.theartofcharm.com to get some deets on that. And we also have the AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text the word charmed to the number 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. The challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. Also, we got regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed in the US to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at the Art of Charm Podcast dot com.